Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. Today's guest was appointed a judge of the General Court of the European Union in Luxembourg after a first career as a practitioner and leading counsel in the field of European Union law. He practiced most especially in competition law, trade law, customs, internal market rules, intellectual property and constitutional rights in a variety of sectors including broadcasting, chemicals, information technology, pharmaceuticals, software and sport. Quite apart from the very many cases he sat upon as a judge, as an advocate he argued in many contests which have become leading cases, including the football transfer case of Bosman, McGill copyright licensing, Microsoft computer servers, IMS compulsory licensing, GlaxoSmithKline parallel trading, and a host of others. He has published a huge number and a wide variety of articles on trade, competition, sport and procedural due process, which became increasingly important in light of the Lisbon Treaty, which from December 2009 made the case law of the Strasbourg Court binding on the Luxembourg Courts. He has a separate interest, which is access to justice and pro bono activity, which stretches back to 1970, when he successfully worked on an appeal in the US Second Court of Appeals on behalf of Lewis Henry Burns, wrongly convicted on the basis of a coerced confession. It is a privilege and pleasure today to welcome Ian Forrester, QC. Ian, thanks very much for being with us today. You you have vast experience as a judge and an advocate in the General Court of the EU and the Court of Justice. And I wonder if you might compare and contrast the different approaches of the courts with the UK courts in general. What I have in mind is here the appeal courts rely primarily on oral presentation, whereas in the European courts, they tend to have extensive written representations first. Do you have anything to say about that? Yes, indeed. You need to remember that the court, when I was on it, had um, was, was the court of 28 countries with 24 official languages and one working language. If you think about it, a working language is necessary when pleadings can come in in Lithuanian or Portuguese, Greek or English. And so French is the working language of the court. And uh, a, a slight exaggeration, nothing happens until the texts have been translated into French and the discussions between the judges are pretty much all in French. Sometimes a member who doesn't feel comfortable will say, can I switch to English? And pretty much always the, that doesn't pose a problem. But if you reflect on it, that is one cause 
of the preference of the court to use written texts because oral presentation through an interpreter necessarily loses something. So that's one explanation of a major difference between the UK courts and the court in Luxembourg. The court in Strasbourg, human rights, is a bilingual court which operates in English and in French. But in Luxembourg for the moment, I suppose one day that might change. And there have been suggestions that English could be added as an optional uh, working language for English language cases in the general court. But that is some way in the future. So that's the first reason. Second is that in the continental tradition, indeed, written pleadings are nearly always more important than oral advocacy. And so the, the explanation or the illustration of that proposition that I give to visitors is that in the UK, notably in England, in the old days, let's say 25, 30 years ago, if this was the beginning of the case and that was the end of the case, the oral portion would be very important, it would be very big, and it would be near the middle and uh, before the middle of the case. By contrast, in Luxembourg, the oral portion is smaller and occurs towards the end of the, of the proceedings. And the, the tradition, there's a third reason and a fourth one. The third uh, explanation of the difference between the UK and continental countries relates to how advocates are treated by the bench. In England, it's perfectly normal for the judge to say, Mr. Forrester, how can you argue that given what we said or what the House of Lords said in Phosphy Harbottle? And the, the advocate says, no, 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 you're not, you're mistaken. And there is a debate as between, you might say, a student and a teacher. Now, in some continental traditions, a judge who asks provocative question like that would be regarded as revealing a predetermined inclination uh, or a fixed opinion as to the correctness of one side or the other in the case before him. And that would be regarded as, as misconduct. And I had many discussions with my colleagues saying, if you're going to have oral presentations, it's an opportunity for the court to reveal to the advocates, hey, I'm not convinced on this question. I'm not convinced on that question. Please address it. And I said, said in writing, it's um, natural that any advocate would like to be better informed about what is on the judge's mind. And so from the point of view of the efficiency, getting, getting goodness out of the oral presentation, don't sit there like stookies, as we would say in Scotland, be interventionist, be active. And the last big difference 
between the UK and the civil law tradition is that there is in the UK a very well-established phenomenon of judicial review. And you know that in matters large and small, there is the possibility that a court may strongly disagree or may disagree with, um, with the legality of what the public authority has done. And that may be from denying the bus pass to the person who is physically disabled or um, something as hugely sensitive as choosing when uh, to advise the sovereign to prorogue parliament. So judicial review is a big constitutional, institutional part of the UK's tradition. But other countries are not like that. In France, there's a Conseil d'État, and it receives, for example, has received many complaints about the COVID restrictions. And I was told last week that out of about 1,250 challenges to COVID restrictions, the Conseil d'État had intervened maybe 50 times, that's to say, had said those restrictions go too far. That that uh, readiness to check governmental action is by no means universal across the European Union. So those are a few of the biggest contrasts between the traditions of the European courts and the traditions of the UK courts. Thank you. You've, you've actually picked up something which I heard Lord Panic say in a recent Hamlin lecture that advocates should welcome questions rather than be threatened by them. And, and you endorse that view, I take it, from what you've said. I absolutely do. And it's an opportunity for the advocate revealed to him or her what it is that's on the judge's mind. And it is far more efficient for the judge to say, I don't get that. Can you explain it better? I don't think you've fairly represented the case against you. It's far better to say that directly than to sit silently for fear of being impolite to the bar. Indeed, I have written an article somewhere saying that it's the duty of judges to be rude to counsel from time to time because it keeps them on their toes. Excellent. Now, I wonder if I can turn to the way the general court works in that uh, one judge is assigned the role of juge rapporteur and at the conclusion of the oral stage of the proceedings, as I understand it, he prepares a report, the hearing, and summarises the argument of the parties and the judges deliberate on the basis of that, uh, of that draft. Ultimately, a unanimous decision comes about. In this country, on the other hand, the appeal judges may not nominate one of their judges to write a judgment, but they may give separate ones and the judgment may not be unanimous. What do you say about the merits of delivering a unanimous verdict uh, compared with a majority one, which has a strong dissenting minority judgment, but which leaves the way open for argument on future appeals, perhaps in the higher courts? Let me correct one portion of what you asked about the practice of the general court. Um, it, is, it is correct that the juge rapporteur is in charge of 
formulating the court's opinion. That's right. However, the the court does a lot of preparation before the oral hearing, if there is one. And the juge rapporteur prepares before hearing the parties a detailed report which goes into all aspects of the case. And in that respect, it's different from the practice is different from the Court of Justice. Now, therefore, when the argument in the general court occurs, the judges have already spent probably months debating between themselves what the case is about and what way they're going to go. And if there is disagreement between them or different approach, then they will be aware of it before the oral argument occurs. Now, you're quite right. The the judgments are signed by each judge. That is correct. And that is a formal requirement that indicates that a quorum of judges did participate and did sign off on the ultimate judgment. The, The process of reaching consensus involves frequently, frequently, concessions, mutual concessions. I really don't like paragraph 86 because, um, (laughs) well, can can we improve it? No, I think you need to take it out altogether. And this is my paragraph 86. Well, if you do that, then, and back and forth goes the negotiation. Sometimes, sometimes. Most cases, yeah, most cases involve, don't involve strong disagreement, but a few cases do. Now, it is often discussed whether the quality of the judgments would improve if there were the possibility of dissents. And in my view, at least at the general court, it would be helpful for there to be occasional dissents. I think it's not desirable to have, as we saw on the US Supreme Court about 20 years ago, sometimes there would be four judgments uh, giving different uh, approaches to the resolution of a case. And so the outcome was really muddy, and the impact of the dissents was greater and the, the, the conviction carried by the case was diminished. I think that it is good, as in Strasbourg, to have occasional written dissents, fairly short, and I think that for a number of reasons. One is that from the point of view of the parties, It's fair, it's nice, it's polite, if you want, to say to the losing party, what you said was not stupid. Uh, What you said made good sense to uh, several of us, one of us, but other countervailing arguments prevailed. And so it's a reassurance to the party that they were not barking up the wrong tree.
separately, a dissent can be like a sleeping policeman on the road, a warning to go slowly and an indication to the public authority, well, okay, on this occasion, you what you did was okay, comma, but we're not giving you a green light for every incursion upon intellectual property or the imposition of gigantic fines or access to data. I think that because big decisions in taken in competition cases in Luxembourg, excuse me, in Brussels, are few, it's a small number of cases, uh, the law tends to develop jerkily and in big woomph, woomph, say five, seven, ten years apart. And I think that if there were dissents, there would be more clarity about the limits of the of the new principle being being endorsed. So I'm aware of the arguments against, but on balance, I think that a dissent uh, does, as Leonard Hand said, I may be misquoting, it's a contribution to the brooding spirit of the law in, in the future. Now, I wonder if I can turn to Brexit, whatever the merits and demerits of it, uh, some would say that it was rushed through in order to achieve ideological goals and the detail wasn't thought through sufficiently in advance. Now, we're already seeing squabbles taking place over fishing rights and the Irish border question. I'm wondering where all this leaves the judges who have to decide how court of justice cases should be applied in the UK because we're now a sovereign state. After all, we still have to work alongside our EU friends and partners. How do you see that evolving? I was appointed before the referendum. I was a junior judge on the day the referendum was announced. I was encouraged by the court to speak publicly, uh, I hope with appropriate moderation and discretion during the post-referendum and pre-referendum circumstances. I said before the referendum and after the referendum, if we're going to do Brexit, that's a political act. It's a severing or an attempted severing of ties between the UK and the European Union. And that can be regretted or celebrated depending on your view of your own identity. But uh, for 45 years, the UK has been pooling its sovereignty to regulate enormous numbers of subjects to do with daily life in, in the UK. Now, the number of topics that are governed by European law are so numerous that a huge amount of work and a huge amount of reflection needs to be done in order to avoid confusion not just confusion, but economic damage, loss of opportunity, and distress for individuals. And so if you're going to do Brexit, the political act, don't do Brexit until some of the following things have been properly addressed. 
Now, as we know, the choice was taken to, quote unquote, get Brexit done, as if it was um, a sort of straightforward matter. Like I offered the analogy, I'm going to switch my gym or my golf club or the primary school that my daughter attends. It's a binary choice and uh, we'll move from one, one regime to another. But Brexit is actually a much more complex, far, far, far more complex, almost existential question. So it's closer to, shall we get divorced or shall we emigrate? Because after, if, if the answer to that is affirmative, then there follow on a string of very difficult, very sensitive questions. And I am dismayed and I think you'll find many, many judges in continental Europe and in the UK, who are dismayed by the uncertainties still unresolved. The British civil service has been working like, um, like mad things to produce statutory instruments. But the, um, where a choice has been presented between continuity, stability and prosperity and divergence and sovereignty, the, it would appear that the government's choice has generally been to favour sovereignty at the cost of disruption. I know, for example, of literally thousands of people whose status in the light of Brexit personal status have been suffering because of doubts about their personal status and the regime applicable to them. So there's a case concerning uh, Madame Bouillet, who is a UK citizen resident in France, who has challenged before the French courts the denial of access to the voting booth in French municipal elections. Now that's, you might say in one sense, something small, but it's something important. There are certainly hundreds of thousands of people who have been put into uncertainty, anxiety, fear, because their status, their right to remain where they thought was home has been encroached upon by Brexit. And I feel, I feel very strongly that Her Majesty's government has not done its duty towards UK citizens working or retired outside the UK in the EU 27. Thank you, Ian. I wonder if I can move on finally to talk about advocacy in your own career in the European courts. I think it must be 20 years or so since I was first with you in Luxembourg. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners what in your career as an advocate, rather than as a judge, you found the most challenging in appearing before the General Court or the Court of Justice? Are there any particular examples you can call to mind? Gosh, well, I remember my having to argue in French and having lived in Brussels for years and having had a good Scottish education in French irregular verbs, my French was respectable, 
but pleading in French is another matter. And the Bossman case concerned a footballer who had a badly treated with respect to his transfer. And um, his case produced a revolution in many aspects of the football industry. And uh, before me spoke the, the leader of the bar of Liège and the Batonnier, the leader of the bar of Brussels. Beautiful, beautiful, elegant language. And recognizing my own uh, imperfections, I began by saying, après le Rossignol de la Belgique, le Corbeau de l'Écosse, after the Belgian Nightingales, the Crow from Scotland. And that got a woof, 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 woof. And I was even written up in the French sports newspaper on page three, though without a picture, as um, a frivolous, a cheerful account of, of what I'd said. So uh, language is, is a challenge. On that occasion, once you've done it a few times, you realize that in Luxembourg, perfect French isn't expected. It's like Latin during the Middle Ages at um, diplomatic conferences. People make mistakes, people invent words, people get their endings wrong, people don't do subjunctive when it should be subjunctive. Small mistakes are kind of normal and accents are very varied. So after a while, anxiety about French uh, diminishes and pretty much uh, disappears. That was one thought. Another thought is competition cases are getting, are and are, are big, and they're getting bigger and worse, in the sense that the commission, for fear of missing something, has the habit of uh, producing judgments which are uh, decisions which are 500 pages long. And that has to be summarized for the European court in 72 days. And that is a huge effort for, for the advocate. And the temptation is to say, there are 15 points I want to raise. And really, it's only three or four points which are important. So boiling it down and summarizing it, making it intelligible is a big challenge. Now, that's the, the written pleadings are indeed translated into French and supplied to the judges. But the annexes, which people often rely on to show a lot of stuff, there's a risk that the annexes will get forgotten. And so again, the demand for simplicity, for clarity, for focus on the essentials is, is very strong. Separately, the, you have to recognize that if you're going in English and you have a court composed of Denmark, Lithuania, Romania, Malta, and Ireland, uh, you, need to, you need to recognize when speaking that the effort of oral simultaneous translation is a big strain. The interpreters are brilliant. They're, they're fantastic. But it's exhausting for them. And it isn't easy for the judges either. Because if you if the advocate speaks too fast, 
then the different interpreters will have to omit. But the different interpreters, the Lithuanian interpreter, may omit something different than the Romanian interpreter. And so the thread can readily be lost. And that's why the court has gradually reduced the length of pleading time. When I started, two hours, 90 minutes would be what you were given. Uh, but now it's 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 25 minutes maybe, but not, not long speeches. It's a great thrill. It's, it's uh, if you're experienced and you've spoken to the court before, then it, it's, a, it's a big challenge. Jeremy Lever used to say that you should spend at least one hour of preparation for every minute of, of speech. And before, before an argument, I would drive my colleagues mad by constantly reviewing and shortening and simplifying and focusing what it was we were going to say. And I was notorious, and I admit it, but I'm mildly, but I don't regret it, for going maybe 15 drafts or 20 drafts of a speech of 20 minutes making it simple, focusing on the two or three winning points, and then having a summary ready at the end, which boiled it down in just two minutes. Making every minute crucial, yes. And I remember, uh, with affection, seeing you sitting there behind. Ian, thank you ever so much for talking to us today. Um, your insights have been invaluable, I'm sure the listeners will find it extremely interesting. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Baines Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Baines Law.